0: Thank you, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Let me just add my welcome. Uh, It's great to have you with us. And if you're visiting or it's your first time, great to have you with us this morning. We hope you feel welcome. Uh, And as we continue our series in this book of Acts, uh, we hope you're encouraged. It's uh, an encouraging thing. There's a lot to get through, two chapters. So much to say, Uh, won't necessarily get through all that can be said, but that's probably good for you as well as for me. So let's, let's pray and ask God to help us as we reflect on this passage together. Gracious God, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of being known and loved by you the God who created us and didn't just create us and leave us alone but sent your own son into the world to be our savior father thanks for the reality of that and for the way in which that transforms life give us understanding of your word this morning in Jesus name amen well many uh, many people think that the ultimate good in life is happiness uh, it's all about the maximisation, don't even know if that's a word, of my own life. Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter what effect I have on other people as long as I'm happy. I even found out this week that there's a guy here in Sydney uh, who calls himself Dr. Happy. Has anyone been to see Dr. Happy? Anyone willing to admit? Having gone? Anyway, there you go. Uh, he heads up the Happiness Institute and he tells people how they can be happy. And he seems to be doing a roaring trade. Clearly not everyone is, but it seems as though most people see happiness as an expectation. Now, let me say that I'm all for happiness. Uh, Joy and happiness are certainly a byproduct of being Christian, which makes sense when you properly understand the blessings of the Christian message. But for the Christian, happiness can't be the ultimate expectation of our lives here on earth. In fact, I'd go so so far as to say that I think it's a false expectation. Christians who think that the ultimate good in this life is happiness fail to see that the cross of Jesus is the purpose of God. See, one of the uh, difficulties Christians face is false expectations of their faith and ministry. Uh, Of course, there are many false expectations that Christians can have and they all tend to lead to doubt. Uh, disappointment, they can even be the reason for a lack of joy. So, for example, we're told in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. But what happens when you take that bold step of sharing the gospel with a friend or family member and they don't respond or they're even angry with you? The gospel doesn't seem that powerful then, does it? Now, no doubt doubt that will be disappointing, but does it make you lose confidence in the gospel itself? Have you given up talking to your non Christian friends about Jesus? Have you actively bypassed opportunities to tell people the gospel? Now, if that's you, um, chances are you may have some false expectations. So, what can we expect? Uh, what can we expect as we actively engage in ministry together and in our individual settings? Well, chapters 13 and 14 uh, are an account of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. Uh, it's a fascinating account, but as we look at it, what, what could they expect as they're about to embark upon this remarkable new stage of the Christian mission? Well, c- can I suggest that the overall expectation that you get is that Jesus will fulfill his promise for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a consistent outward movement of the gospel in these two chapters, uh, which is exactly in line with what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, Jesus promised that the gospel would begin in Jerusalem, but that it would move out to Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so this first missionary journey sees the, if you like, the first full-blown movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile, that is to non-Jew. And essentially that's what Acts is about. Uh, What Luke, the writer, wants us to see is that this is very clearly God at work, fulfilling his promises through his Son and his Holy Spirit as we would expect. Now you can see uh, God at work right at the beginning of chapter 13 here, in the commissioning of Saul and Barnabas. Now, incidentally, in verse 9 of chapter 13, Saul's name uh, is changed to the Greek name Paul, uh, which is appropriate uh, for his Gentile mission, and he's no longer referred to as Saul in the book of Acts. But let's have a look at these first few verses in chapter 13, so pick it up from verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Uh, the church in Antioch which is Uh, already a a very mixed group of people send out Paul and Barnabas to the work they'd already been called to. Now notice here, though, the real sender. In verse 2, it's the Holy Spirit who tells the church to set apart Barnabas and Saul. And then in verse 4, it's the Holy Spirit who sends them out. And we don't know exactly what that looks like at, at the time, but this is God's commission here, not some committee. God is the one who always takes the initiative at every point in salvation history. And so that's why Paul and Barnabas were sent out. Uh, The outward movement of the gospel, of the the Christian message about Jesus and all that he's done, is God's work. And the first thing we we notice is that it moves out geographically. Now, I just want you to have a bit of an idea where Paul and Barnabas go on this mission with the gospel. Uh, You may have already seen it in the kids' talk, I think, but it's just helpful being able to see it, I think. Uh, It makes good sense that they start in Cyprus, the the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas is from. They go from one end of that island to the other, from Salamis to uh, Paphos. Uh, Next, having done that, they sail up to Perga and head to another Antioch. In Pisidia, it's not the same one that they came from that sent them in the first place, so it can be a bit confusing. Uh, they're now in modern day Turkey. Now, this Antioch is where the bulk of Luke's account is centred. He records Paul's first sermon here in the synagogue, uh, which we're going to look at a little more closely in a moment. But eventually, they get kicked out of Antioch before going to Iconium. Uh, they have to flee Iconium to Lystra. And then eventually Paul is stoned uh, by rocks hitting him, that is, uh, and believed to be dead in Lystra. But he survives and he, he moves on to Derby before heading back through the same towns where he's been persecuted, encouraging those who had become Christians. And they eventually uh, return back home to report to the church at the original Antioch all that had happened. And so the message of the gospel is moving outward geographically. But it's not just geographically, it's also having an impact culturally and socially as the Gentiles are increasingly Paul's target audience. Now before we get into that a bit more, I, I want us just to pause here for a moment on this sermon that Paul gives in the synagogue at Antioch in verse 16. Now Paul's sermon here is the longest recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, it makes clear what Paul understood the content of the Christian gospel to actually be. Uh, today the church is predominantly Gentile but the reality is that the gospel was first and foremost a message of good news to the Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. The apostles including Paul were Jews and Paul begins his ministry by entering into the synagogue not simply because strategically it made sense but also because theologically it was appropriate that is it was appropriate in the purposes of God. And now over in verse 46 there of chapter 13, Paul tells the Jews that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to them. And so Paul begins his sermon by reminding them that their history was actually God's history. Now See how Paul begins there from the second part of verse 16? He says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he'd led them out of it in terms of israel's history what paul is saying is that god had directed it all the people of israel had prospered because of god and then paul reminds them of the promise that god had made to their greatest ever king to king david now have a look at what he says over in verse 23 He says there in verse 23, of this man's offspring, that is of King David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. See, Paul actually shows that God always planned to bring salvation, right from the very beginning. It's not a man-made rescue mission. This is a salvation from God for humanity. Now, the the Old Testament quotes that Paul uses in verses 33, 34, and 35 show that God has fulfilled his promises to King David by sending Jesus as their saviour to forgive their sins, grant them eternal life. It's first to Israel, but it extends to all humanity. Now, look for a moment at the full conclusion of Paul's sermon over in verses 38 and 39, because here he comes to the pointy end. Verse 38, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So here is both the content and the means of God's salvation. Now, the word translated as freed, twice there in verse 39, is actually the word justified. You can see it in your footnote there. It's an, act, it's an incredibly important word in the Bible. It's not just being found not guilty of something. It's being declared right, to be fully righteous before God. It's just as if I'd never done anything wrong. The law of Moses, which includes the Ten Commandments, was actually given to show us God's perfect standards. And the problem is that it exposes the reality that none of us meet those standards. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. But the law of Moses doesn't just show us God's perfect standards, it actually upholds God's perfect justice. The breaking of God's law requires punishment. Just read the Ten Commandments and see if you live up to God's perfect character and standards. And we can't pretend it doesn't matter. But here is the sheer beauty of the Christian gospel. The message of salvation that is just kind of beginning to sweep across the globe in this first of the missionary journeys is that everyone who believes in Jesus is justified, freed, declared righteous from everything from which you could not be justified by the law. See, this salvation promised by God has been achieved by Jesus, which is why he takes us through the facts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, in verses 26 to 31. Because it's Jesus who met God's standard on our behalf. It's him who paid the price for our sin. And so salvation is available on the basis of belief in Jesus and on the basis of belief alone, which is why it's available to everyone who believes. And did you notice the response from verse 44? the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. See, it's because it's available to everyone, it actually brings out the whole city. It's an amazing offer that God would consider me righteous. So here is the offer of the Christian message. Salvation is available in the Lord Jesus Christ to all who will trust him. And no wonder they came out in droves wanting to hear more. But sadly, notice, not everyone. Let me just pick it up from verse 45 there in chapter 13. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end ends of the earth. Now Paul might have expected that if the gospel was for the Jews, they would embrace it. Jesus was their saviour. He was the fulfilment of God's promises to them. And you could understand if Paul was a little bit disappointed here. You might even expect that Paul could begin to doubt the gospel. If the death and resurrection of Jesus was God's way of saving the Jews, then you might expect that they would embrace the gospel when they heard it. That, that, of course, isn't fully the case. And yet, Paul and Barnabas are not deterred. Uh, now, there are some commentators who wonder why that's not the case. But the fact is, the overall Jewish response is exactly what Paul expected, which is why in verse 41 he quotes another Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk, uh, as a warning to them to hear what he's saying. The Jewish response was actually predicted in the Old Testament. He was predicted by Jesus. And what the Jews jealously reject, the Gentiles gladly accept. Now, not all Jews, of course. There are many who continue to embrace Jesus today, and we pray many more will continue to come into God's kingdom as they accept Jesus as their saviour. But the result is that the gospel continues its movement outwards. The mission begins with the Jews, but it spreads to the Gentiles. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, the the gospel was now well and truly moving out more than than geographically. It was now radically crossing cultural boundaries as well. Uh, In chapter 13, uh, some Gentiles are spoken of here as God-fearers. Some had already begun to worship the true and living God before the arrival of the gospel. But now they embrace Jesus. But in chapter 14, the gospel begins to penetrate even further as pagans in Lystra and Derby, those who worship false gods, begin to be impacted by the gospel as well. Now, this outward movement of the gospel is God's work, and it's right for us to expect that God's promises will be fulfilled, but it's also right for us to expect that there'll be inevitable consequences when we preach the gospel when we tell people about Jesus. Now, one of those consequences is belief and joy. Now, it's inevitable that when the word of God is preached, people will believe. Uh, Luke emphasizes it wherever the gospel is preached. In Cyprus, notice, uh, if you remember back to to chapter 13, he he focuses on Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. Uh, In verse seven, we're told that he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And then over in verse 12, we read, when the proconsul believed, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It was the same, remember, in Antioch, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And it was the same story in Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Where the gospel is preached, people get converted. Now, I think we're a, a little jaded in this expectation at times. We don't seem to see lots of conversions these days, do we? <clears throat> I mean, Paul preached in different circumstances a long time ago. What can we really expect today? Well, can I carefully suggest that perhaps one of the problems is being in the wrong place at the wrong time, perhaps, That is, in Australia in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, if the common statistics uh, that are regularly spoken of are even vaguely true, then God is at work in our world, through his word, by his spirit, in some remarkable ways still. Now, much of that work is taking place in non-Western parts of our world. So, for example, in the early 2000s, uh, Josh Claiborne, a lawyer and a leading Christian writer on a range of issues, Uh, writes this, he said, in communist China, in the face of sometimes terrifying government opposition, people are committing themselves to a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ at a rate averaging about 28,000 new converts a day. Now that's less than 20 years ago. He goes on to talk about the incredible growth of Christianity in Africa, where it's reported that Christian growth in Africa has been nothing short of astonishing. There were 8.7 million African Christians in 1900, but there are over 389 million African Christians today. The word of God is powerful. It always brings about his effects. That is, people get converted. But not everyone who hears the gospel is converted. A belief is only one of the inevitable consequences Because the other side of the coin is rejection. Whether Elimas the magician or the Jews in Antioch, Luke implies that their rejection was deliberate. That is, it's not that they don't understand, it's just that they will not believe. And so we need to realise that the gospel won't always be met with joyful belief. But that should never stop us from sharing it. Well, in chapter 14, there is a a different response to the Jewish rejection that we've seen. Um, One of the consequences of preaching to um, pagans, to uh, non-believers or believers in other gods, sometimes is just simply misunderstanding. So in Lystra, I think it's a a classic cross-cultural setting for the gospel. In verse 8 and following, Luke records Paul in the middle of his preaching, healing a a lame person who was listening. However, instead of when that happened, instead of that kind of authenticating his authority as a witness of Jesus, like it happened for the apostle Peter back in chapter three, they misunderstand and think that their own gods had come down in the person of Paul and Barnabas to visit them. You know, as we we think about our own city uh, here in Sydney, we're a diverse city, aren't we? We're culturally and religiously diverse. And there are gonna be times when we need to rethink how we share the gospel with some people. Because if we assume too much, they may not even understand us. Now notice, for example, how different Paul's sermon to these pagans is uh, in verses 15 to 17 than it was from his sermon in the synagogue to those who knew the history. He doesn't even get to Jesus yet in his sermon uh, here. He has to establish that there is only one God whom we are dependent on before we can actually move any further. Now, that actually ought to make us think a little bit harder about how uh, and with whom we're sharing the gospel these days and the unawkwarding Jesus that we're doing in growth groups is trying to help us do that. Well, finally, there's one more inevitable consequence that comes from preaching the gospel. Uh, It's not just that sometimes people will reject the gospel. There will also be times when people actively oppose the gospel and they'll oppose those who believe and speak about it. I think it's fair to say that our current debates over the religious discrimination bill actually bear that out. The book of Acts doesn't hide that fact. It actually goes out of its way to make sure its readers realise that. In Iconium, plans were made to stone Paul and they have to flee. In Lystra, he finally is stoned and left for dead. And listen to what Paul says as he goes back through those same towns, speaking to those who had come to believe. And look at verse 21 of chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now it may not sound, might not sound great, But Paul wants us to expect hardships because it's through persecutions and hardships that we are going to be in the kingdom of God. Paul actually has his eyes wide open and he wants us to have our eyes wide open when it comes to Christianity. It's not all plain sailing, but there's nothing more worthwhile in all the earth than the joy of knowing Jesus as our saviour. Now, importantly, this passage corrects some of the areas where Christians can have false expectations. To live the Christian life well requires having the right expectations. And so let's have a look at a few of those as we conclude. That is, we need to expect that God is still at work. The whole Bible makes it clear that God is never content to leave people unreached by the gospel. Uh, Christianity is, at essence, a rescue mission. A message of salvation. God thinks that you and I need saving. And that's the good news message of salvation for the whole world that Christians talk about. Of forgiveness of sins. Of freedom from guilt and shame and death and whatever it is that enslaves you. And of great blessing from the hand of God. Now we often sing that great old hymn, Rock of Ages. It has the words that speak about the work of Jesus. It says... Be for sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. See, the the Apostle Paul knew of this double curse, the guilt and power of sin. But he also knew of this double cure, the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, that's why Paul was compelled to preach the gospel whenever, wherever he could. See, now is still the time for the good news to reach out into the land of both Gentile and Jew. God is out there doing it. He's calling people to himself. He's doing it. Will you get on board with what he's doing? Do you know that God is still at work? Well, secondly, we need to realise that the gospel still divides. Uh, As difficult as, as we find that, we need to expect it. Our desire, of course, is that everyone knows the great joy of having a relationship with Jesus. But we're told to expect that when the gospel is preached there will be two responses. Some will believe, others will reject. And if we fail to realize that reality it will lead us to doubt the love and the power of God. Well a third right expectation is that eternal life is still by the way of the cross. People who Uh, Chase happiness as the ultimate good. Do so via external circumstances, by possessions. I mean, some Christians mistakenly think that because they have God, then they'll also have health and wealth and success and therefore happiness. Yes, God keeps his promises, but he never promised those things in this life. In fact, every generation of unbelievers have proven that those external things can never ultimately bring an individual true happiness. Jesus entered into his glory by way of the cross. And Paul makes it clear that we are to follow in his footsteps the footsteps of our Saviour. First the cross, then the crown. It's his kingdom that matters. And one day all other kingdoms will lay in ruins and give way to the kingdom of God see, Christians don't chase external happiness as the ultimate. But that doesn't mean that joy isn't still a reality, because it is. And we need to realise that true joy and happiness is not dependent on external circumstances. Uh, The people in chapter 13 were filled with joy because they had their sins forgiven, their guilt removed, the guarantee of eternal life. Sure, they may have had to face opposition, ridicule, even possibly persecution. But when we are the Lord's, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We may not pursue happiness as the ultimate good, but we have access to the greatest joy. It's found in Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Saviour, we thank you for sending your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ to live, to die, to be raised to life again for our forgiveness, for our justification that we might be freed from the guilt and the shame and the failure of sin and given life freely by putting our trust, our faith, our belief in Jesus. Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see this morning if that's not something that we've done that it's as simple as accepting you as our saviour. And Father, we pray, Lord God, that if we have done that, that we would see that the gospel is wonderful and is powerful to save sinners. And so help us to be bold as we declare it to others and trust you for the response. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.